word from the book of Romans this morning, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. It really begins uh, more of the practical section of the book of Romans. And often we think of this chapter in individual terms, but think of it in terms of the church as a whole. And not merely as my own personal progress and sanctification and conversion, but the life that we all live in the church together and how all of these members individually growing intersect with one another in the church. This is God's Word, Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that she may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation, that is, without hypocrisy. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So far we read in Holy Scripture. In light of that reading, let's consider the instruction of Lord's Day 21. Question and answer 55. We've already considered question and answer 54 on the Holy Catholic Church. Now question 55 asks, what do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common, partakers of Him and of all His riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be His duty, readily and cheerfully to employ His gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, any young person who desires to be a medical professional will have to take a class called Anatomy and Physiology. 
Now, anatomy is a study of all of the parts of the body, the human body, and how those parts fit together. A high school anatomy student will have to memorize the names of all of the organs and all of the muscles in the human body. She will have to know the difference between the tibia and the fibula and all the other bones in the human skeleton. He will have to know the layers of the human skin and the different cells that make up each layer. Anatomy is about structure. Anatomy is about parts and how those parts relate to one another. Physiology then looks at all these parts and studies how they function together in various systems in the body and how those systems function together. Physiology, therefore, implies that you are looking at a living organism rather than a corpse. You may be able to study the anatomy of a corpse, its structure that is, but you cannot study the physiology of a corpse. Physiology involves many parts working and interacting together for the good of the whole. Physiology implies life. Lord's Day 21, then, is a kind of anatomy and physiology lesson when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. In question and answer 54, you might say we were looking at the church's anatomy. This is what the church is. The church is one holy, diverse assembly of all of those people whom God has chosen from eternity in love and whom Christ has redeemed at the cross. The church is that body of many parts of which Jesus Christ is the head. However, you don't have the full picture of the church if you stop there. You don't have a full conception of what the church is if all, of, all you know is its anatomy. And that's the importance of question and answer 55, which gives us a view into the church's physiology, you might say. The importance of question and answer 55 is that Apart from what we are taught here about the communion of the saints, you don't really have the church. You may have a corpse with the anatomy of the church, but you don't have the living body of Christ. The life of the church, its physiology, is the communion of saints in which every member believes and lives according to the belief that we are all members of Christ and therefore we are also members one of another. And that's what I call our attention to this morning. Believing we are members one of another. First, that we share a communion in Christ. Secondly, that this communion is expressed in the actions or the activity of all of the members in the body. And finally, that this is a communion of saints. Individuals who are part of a body, but individuals who are saints. Believing we are members one of another, communion in Christ, communion in action, communion of saints. Believing the communion of saints is believing that in the church we are members one of another. Now I'm not sure that we fully grasp the depth and intimacy that we share in this communion. In order to understand that, you have to trace it back to the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. Jesus makes a startling statement in John 14, verse 11. John 14, verse 11, Jesus says to His disciples, Believe Me that I am in the Father, and the Father in Me, or else believe Me for the very work's sake. But believe Me, He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in Me. It's that intimate, that close, so that everything that the Son does, everything that the Son says, the Father is in it as well. They are one being. They share one life as the Holy Spirit moves from the Father and moves to the Son from the Father so that the Father is in the Son by the Spirit and the Son is in the Father by the Spirit. It's that close. Now that level of intimacy and oneness is unique in the triune God. And there are aspects of that which are not shared by His creatures even in the communion of saints. God is God. 
and the persons in the Godhead share in that divinity. And yet the communion of saints is modeled off of that intimate life that we see in the Godhead. This deep and close communion is part and parcel of what it means to live in the covenant and to enjoy the covenant as members of the body of Christ. As the Apostle says in verse 5, we are everyone members of one another. Members of one another. It's an amazing statement. You are members of me. And I am member of you. And you are all members of one another. Which is to say we share one life. We have one identity that names us. We are bone of each other's bone and flesh of each other's flesh in Christ. So intimately and deeply connected that everything that I do impacts and reflects on you. And everything that you do impacts and reflects on me. And we all impact and reflect on one another. We are everyone members one of another. It's an amazing statement. What this means is that to be a Christian is to give up your claims on your individuality. That's what the world tells us. The world tells us you have to be an individual. The world tells us and it tells our children and it tells our young people that to be happy you have to be an individual and you have to express that individuality. You have to be that lonely cowboy who goes off to face the wild frontier all by yourself. You have to be Rosie the Riveter, the tough woman who makes it on her own in a man's world. You have to be the rugged individual, the one who's bold enough to do it your own way no matter what others may think or say about it. Individualism, that's called. And though the trappings of that message change over time, the basic message is very alive and very well in today's culture. Don't worry about obligations to family. Don't worry about obligations to church and to society. You just be you. Be your true self. Maybe your true self doesn't match up with your biology, but you be your true self. Be authentic. Be real. Which means you have to take your cues from your feelings. The feelings that you have as an individual. And that's where you will find the truth. Your truth. What you think. What you want. What you feel. That's individualism or as it's been called by some, expressive individualism. And that's not only a liberal message, by the way. It's not only a message that comes from the left. This is a message that dominates the thinking of those who consider themselves to be conservative as well in our culture. This is the message that tugs at the heart of every human being because this is the first and fundamental sin. The first and fundamental sin is this. I'm free from having to care about my neighbor and what's good for him or her. I'm free from having to think of myself as God's servant. God who claims ownership of me and my individuality. I'm free from that. I am my own God. I am my own self. I make the rules. And who are you to tell me what to do or what to think? Beloved, do you recognize this? Do you recognize this not just out there in the world where it can be found in spades, but do you recognize it in here? In yourself? Well, if that's the principle that you live by, expressive individualism, you're not a Christian. To be a Christian 
is to give up your rugged individualism. To be a Christian is to reject the message that the world is selling us and our children in nearly every movie that it produces, every song that it sings, every advertisement that it presents before our eyes. To be a Christian is to confess with the apostles and with the church the apostolic faith, which includes this confession, I believe the communion of saints. To be a Christian is to believe that I am part of a we and that we are members one of another. And that my connection with this brother over here or that sister over there is so close, so intimate, that if ultimately and finally I were to be separated from this body so that I am just an individual alone by myself, if I were to be separated finally and ultimately from the body of Christ, I would die. I would perish. I couldn't live without the other members and they couldn't live without me. It's that close. That's that intimate. Now none of this is to deny that every member in the church is an individual. When you become a Christian, you don't suddenly lose your sense of who you are. I am and I will always be a unique person created by God with specific parents and a personal history that is unique to me. You are and you will always be that individual whom God first knit together in your mother's womb. Biologically, each of us has a DNA that is not shared by anyone else. Physically, each of us has a certain height, a certain eye color, a certain hair color, certain physical traits, various degrees of athletic ability. Mentally, each of us has unique interests, varying degrees of focus and attention and intellectual gifts. Spiritually, each of us has our own soul, an individual soul that one day will fall into the hands of the living God. We are individuals. There's no doubt about that. And there's much that we have and much that we do and much that we are accountable for as individuals. And that individuality of all of the various members in the body of Christ is a great gift and a great blessing to the whole body. The Lord's Day gets at this when it speaks of each member having a gift or gifts that can be used for the advantage and salvation of the other members. There are gifts associated with your biological, physical, mental, and spiritual makeup. Or maybe you could sum it up this way by saying everything that is in you that makes you a unique individual, you can sum all of that up and you can say yourself, your, your person, your individual identity is a gift. The gift is the gift of yourself with all that you know, with all that you have, with your emotions and, and mental faculties. Now our foolish and sinful tendency is to look at others and to say, well, well, I want what he has. I want the gifts that she has. Why do I have to have these gifts? Why can't I have those gifts? And we start to despise the gifts that we have and we start to become envious and jealous of the gifts that others have. But the Gospel in our Lord's Day flips that logic that sinful logic on its head and says, no, these are gifts. These are gifts. Every member with his or her individuality is a gift. And it's a gift from the Lord to me. That person with his or her traits and gifts is God's gift to me. And I, with my gifts and my traits, am God's gift to these brothers over there and these sisters over here. And that's a blessing. That's what makes the body a living and functioning and healthy and integrated body. If it were any other way, the life of the body would be tarnished and mutilated. Like if you would cut off an arm and try to stitch a leg there in its place. 
Or slice off your nose and try to implant an eye there in its place. What you have there now is not a healthy body anymore, but a monstrosity. It's a blessing that you are an individual and that I am an individual. The gospel does not force us into a a rigid sameness or conformity that denies the fact that we have individual personalities and gifts. It transforms, rather, each of us by the renewing of our minds. But where the world makes individuality an end in itself, the gospel does not make individuality an end in itself. We are individuals so that we can be members of the body and contribute to the body and participate in the communion of the body. We are many so that we can be one body together in Christ and every one members one of another. Our individuality serves the good of the whole. Now the reason for this close communion that we share with one another follows from the fact that we have communion with Jesus Christ. Every believer is an individual who belongs, first of all, to Jesus Christ. They are members of Christ, as the Lord's Day puts it. They are those who say this, taking their lead from the Heidelberg Catechism, My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His sacrifice has fully delivered me from all of my sins and fully delivered me from the power of the devil. Every believer is among those who are loved eternally by the eternal love of the Father and singled out for election unto life. They are those sheep for whom Christ personally laid down His life on the cross. They are those branches who are engrafted into Christ the vine and to whom the Spirit flows as a life-giving sap so that they bear much fruit. They are therefore, as members of Christ, also partakers of Christ and all His riches and gifts. They are those whose minds are being renewed as the Gospel is proclaimed to them and they embrace that Gospel by a true and living faith. They are those who are being converted by the Spirit so that they are not conformed to this world, but transformed according to that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. They are those in whom the Spirit is actively working to bring forth fruit and life and salvation, softening their hearts and enlivening their wills, making believers out of unbelievers and saints out of sinners. That all comes out of the fact that every individual believer has this membership in Jesus Christ. And membership in Jesus Christ isn't like membership in a club or in Costco or something like that. Membership in Jesus Christ means membership the way your fingers are members of your hand, which is a member of your arm, which is a member of your body. Membership in Jesus Christ is membership the way your veins are members of your heart and your circulatory system is a member of your lungs, which is a member of your brain. It's membership in the way that all the parts of your bodies are members together of your head, which gives unto your whole body a face and direction and rule. It's a vital membership, in other words. A living membership. A membership that defines everything that you are and everything that you will be. All these individual members are members of Jesus Christ and partakers of all His benefits. And the reason this is important here in the Lord's Day on the Communion of Saints is because it's not just you who is a member of Jesus Christ, and it's not just me who is a member of Jesus Christ, but it's also her, and it's also him. It's also that person in the church with whom you used to be friends before drifting apart. It's also that little child who was cradled in his mother's arms. Or that precious girl who has special needs. It's also that person whose humor I just don't understand because I was raised in a different way. Or it's that person who doesn't seem to know how to smile and is so uptight all of the time. It's also that rich brother. It's also that poor brother. It's also that great brother whom everyone seems to look up to as having many great gifts. It's also that little brother 
who too often is forgotten or overlooked by the other members. All of these various members with their individuality are members together of Christ. And therefore, they are members with one another. If you are all branches in the same vine that makes you one plant, if you are all members of the same body that makes you one body, Our membership with one another, therefore, is not just a nice idea. It follows directly from the fact that we are members of Christ. He died for me, Jesus did, but He died for her too. His Spirit is poured out on me, but it's poured out on Him as well. And that makes such a deep and vital connection that it's not an exaggeration to say that we are bone of each other's bone and flesh of each other's flesh. One body, one flesh, one vital union together. Beloved, do you know this? Do you know this? Do you look at one another this way? I know sometimes that there is such a thing as a hypocrite in the church who doesn't really belong to the communion of the saints, and eventually that will be made clear one way or another. But I also think the canons are correct when they say when we look at one another in the church, we ought to exercise the judgment of charity. When our fellow brother or sister professes to be a Christian, which means when I look around me, I don't see a bunch of people to be suspicious of. Oh, I don't know. Does that one really belong? Is she really a member? Hmm, I'm not sure. But rather, I look around me and I see many members for whom Jesus Christ gave His life, shed His blood, poured out His Spirit. I look around me and I see many others who have the Spirit in them. And I need them. I need them. I need everyone. And they need me. Do you know that? Do you look at one another that way? Well, if you do, then the communion of saints will not be static and dead, but it will be an active communion. And there will be a life to it. The communion of saints in action, according to Romans 12, will look like this. It starts as every member does not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of of faith. Isn't it interesting that that's the first thing that Paul says about having a transformed mind? The first thing that Paul says will be evidence of having a transformed mind, not being conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind through the gospel, is that you will not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. That's the first mark. You will not think of yourself as the one to whom everyone else is answerable. You will not think of yourself as the one whom everyone else is there to serve, to be your servant. You will not perhaps be so concerned about your rights and how well everybody else is honoring your rights. You will rather think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Soberly. Out of the faith that God has given to you, which tells you that you are a sinner who is saved only by the grace of God. That's how you will think. Soberly. 
recognizing that my brothers and sisters in the church also have faith, also have the Spirit, also have a renewed mind as the Spirit works in them to transform them along the path that He has ordained for them that is leading them to heaven. Soberly, you will think, with an awareness of your own temptations and your own shortcomings and the fact that you need and I need these other members. We need each other. How we need each other. But it starts there, beloved. When every man thinks of himself not more highly than he ought to think, but thinks soberly according to the measure of faith that God has given, it starts there. And just think how much would change if every one of us really did start there, always and consistently. If every one of us steadfastly refused to think of myself more highly than I ought to think. That's what we do, don't we? We think of ourselves as the highest. Way more highly than we ought to think of ourselves. But what if we all stop that? Really? Consistently? If every one of us laid down our claims to our individual rights and our individual demands and our individual opinions, if every one of us just stopped and looked up, looked up at the holy God with whom we have to do, If we really did that, I believe a lot of problems in the church would just go away. It'd vanish like smoke in the wind. And if you're sitting here thinking, oh, I sure hope so-and-so is listening to this because so-and-so is one of those people who thinks of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, and that person really needs to hear this message, then you better check yourself right there. For I assure you that if that's the way you're thinking, this passage says a lot more about you than it says about so-and-so. Let every one, which means you, and which means me, let every one not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly. That would, give, that would get us a long way, wouldn't it? It would get us a long way. But there's more. The communion of saints in action is when we use our gifts to the advantage and salvation of the other members. Did you know that you have a gift? Did you know that? Let no Christian here say, well, I don't have any gifts. I'm just the little guy who's along for the ride. No, you have a gift. You little child, you have a gift. A gift that nobody else in the church has. Just you. You men who perhaps would like to serve an office but haven't been given the opportunity, you have a gift. A gift that nobody else has. Just you. You women who would like to be mothers and haven't been given that opportunity, you have a gift. A gift that nobody else in the church has. Just you. Everyone has a gift from the Spirit who is a Christian, who is a believer. What that gift is may be surprising to you. Prophesying, the Apostle mentions that. But prophesying isn't always what you may think it is. Prophesying may look glamorous to some, but it wasn't glamorous for Jeremiah, who was thrown into a mud pit for all of his efforts. But prophesying was the gift the Spirit gave to Jeremiah. The gift that Jeremiah was then to give back to the church in the communion of the saints. And it was a gift that Jeremiah was to give back to the church exactly through his patience, patient endurance of humiliation and suffering as he proclaimed the Word of God in love for the body. Teaching. That's a gift. 
that can be a formal gift, but some exercise as a vocation in the Christian school for which we give thanks. Or it can be a very informal gift. My wife's grandfather had the gift of teaching even though his job was that he was a civil engineer. But he had a way of making ideas simple for his grandchildren and for other children in the church. And his grandchildren will always remember him that way. Always look up to him for that. He had the gift of teaching. A spiritual gift. Exhorting, the Apostle mentions. Exhorting. Even if perhaps you don't have the ability to take complex ideas and make them simple as a teacher, you have the ability to exhort. To encourage. And don't underestimate how important that is. can be far more important even than the greatest of teachers simply to be that brother or sister who comes alongside the other brother or sister in the church and encourages them, gives them a note, thinking about you, care about you, praying for you. It can be profoundly impactful and powerful. And that's a gift that only you can give in the way that only you can give it. Everyone has a gift. And as you can see from the examples we've been using, the point of these gifts is not so that we open them up for ourselves. These are not the sort of gifts that we receive on Christmas or on our birthday. These are the gifts that God gives to us specifically so that we can give them away to others. Do you have a mind that is able to retain knowledge and communicate it accurately to others? That gift isn't for your own private use and for your own benefit so that you can look good as a great teacher before the other people. It's a gift that God has given to you so that you can give it back to the members of the body. Do you have a kind and a tender soul so that you are able to listen patiently to others who are suffering in the church? That gift is needed. It's needed by many the many hurting and troubled souls who come to the church looking for refuge and help. Do you have a heart? Do you have a mind? Do you have a soul? A body? Are you alive? Are you breathing? Are you a Christian? Well, none of that's for your own pleasure. None of that is so that you can just feel authentic and express your individuality. God has given you yourself your body, mind, heart, and soul so that you can give yourself to the other members of His church. This is love, Scripture says, that Christ laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. As I mentioned before our Scripture reading, I think we tend to look at Romans 12 in individual terms. This is how I need to grow in sanctification. This is what I need to be. And that's true. There's something true to that. We, we are on our own individual journeys and we have our own progressive sanctification. But there's something much bigger going on here than individuals progressing in sanctification. Paul is describing the activity of the church, the sanctification of the body, which involves many individuals living together as members of one another. Notice what happens when all the members are living out this activity. And it's functioning. What happens is everyone who has needs has those needs met. Everyone who needs the word of prophecy to instruct them and bless them will find other members in the church who are prophesying for the good of the body, even if it results in them being thrown in a pit with mud in the bottom as it was for Jeremiah. When the communion of saints is functioning, everyone who needs fellowship and hospitality will find that there are homes opened up to them and there is fellowship for them to enjoy. Everyone who is so full of joy that they cannot contain their rejoicing will find that there are other members who will rejoice along with them. And everyone who is stricken with grief and with weeping will find that there are other members who will weep along with them. When the communion of saints is functioning well, there's no demanding of personal rights to be satisfied. There's no bitterness and hard feelings. There's never any occasion for it because the body is functioning. The members are working and living together just like the heart works to push blood into the brain, carrying oxygen 
So all the members with their various gifts look away to themselves, to the needs of the other members. And in the process, all of the needs of the whole body are met, including my needs and your needs. Now I realize it doesn't always function that way in the daily life of the church. Sad reality is that sometimes, and maybe more often than we care to admit, there are members who are forgotten and overlooked. And sometimes, and more often than we care to admit, there are members who are deeply hurt by other members. And sometimes, there are those who take and take and take and never seem willing to give. Or when they give, they give only sparingly and because they were shamed into it by others. Sometimes there are hypocrites in the church who don't really belong. And because they don't really belong, just like a cancer doesn't belong in, in a human body, they, they disrupt and hurt the functioning of the body itself. And that's the sad reality. But that sad reality is why it's important to remember that the communion of saints, just like the one holy Catholic church, is an article of our faith. We don't always see the communion of saints. At least we don't always see it at its best. But we do confess and we do believe that the communion of saints is a blessing that is ours in Christ. And it's mine and it's yours and it will be no matter what my condition is or what the condition of the church I am currently a member of is. You may be a member of a church that is riddled with problems, so much so that going to church itself becomes painful. You may be a member of a tiny church that is constantly experiencing turnover as people come and people go. You may be lost in the Siberian wilderness somewhere, all alone, out of circumstances outside of your control, but you still confess and you still believe the communion of saints. But the communion of saints is not rooted in anything that we see. It's rooted in Christ. And it's a spiritual reality. And when we approach the communion of saints out of faith, it ought to shape and it will shape everything I think and everything I say and feel about the communion of saints. I believe the communion of saints. And I practice the communion of saints out of that faith that I have. So even when I think that my rights are being infringed upon in the church, or even when evil is being done to me in the church, I will approach this out of faith as well. Not avenging myself but rather giving place to wrath as the Apostle warns. Not hating and seeking to destroy someone who presents as my enemy, but feeding him and giving him to drink. Not being overcome by evil, but rather seeking to overcome evil with good. Now notice, there is an activity that seeks to overcome evil. Because evil does present itself in the church. It's not as though you just sit there and take it when evil is done. It's not as though you just sit there passively and watch as evil is done. No, you seek to overcome the evil. Overcome evil, Paul says. But you don't seek to overcome evil with more evil. You seek to overcome evil in the way the Lord sought to overcome evil and did overcome evil which was by doing good. By doing good to you. And by doing good to me. That, of course, that work of the Lord is the only reason we can speak of saints in the first place. Or of a communion of saints. Because that's the name the Lord gives to us as our Redeemer and our Sanctifier. That's what you are, Beloved. That's what you are, believing Christian. You're a saint. 
You're a saint. That's why it's so wrong to be envious and jealous of the gifts that others have in the church. That's why it's so wrong to say this. Oh, why can't I be a prophet? Why can't I hold that office over there or this office over there? Why can't I be like her? Why can't I be like him? Why can't I have the same opportunities to serve as that person? Why is my place in the church always overlooked? Why, why am I always the one who is forgotten? And when you start thinking that way, and beloved, we all do think that way at times, don't we? That's human nature. It's human nature to be envious of others, even to be envious of good things. But when you start thinking that way, you need to stop. And you need to say this, who am I? Who am I? Who does God say that I am? Who does Jesus Christ say that I am? And the answer is, I'm a saint. A saint. A holy one. A holy one who has been set apart by God. Set apart by His love. His eternal love. An individual for whom Jesus Christ shed His blood on the cross. Pouring out His life for you. For me. An individual who has the Spirit who is working within me. That's who I am. An heir of life. Eternal life. Someone who one day will judge angels. Who will rule with the Son of God in a new heavens and a new earth. That's what I am. That's who I am. A saint. Saint. It's not just those special people who go above and beyond the call of duty who are saints, which is what Rome teaches. It's not just super-Christians who are saints. It's you. It's a little boy in preschool who can't count to 20 yet, but who knows that Jesus loves him and sings about Jesus' love for him. It's the mother who spends all of her time putting out fires and listening to her children complain. Saint. It's the young father who's up to his neck in work. Then when he gets home at the end of the day, he takes a shower and he goes off to a school board meeting. It's the old woman. The old woman who can do nothing all day but sit in her chair. And she wonders, why am I still here? She can pray. And she can read her Bible. And she's a saint. A saint. We need to remember that. We need to remember what we are. Because there's nothing more important than that. There have been very prominent and very gifted people in the world. There have even been prophets who have prophesied in the Spirit like King Saul who were not saints. It's better, beloved. Rather, it's not better to be a prophet than a saint. It's not better to be a mother or a father than a saint. It's not better to be a great one who has many gifts but who isn't a saint. It's better to be a saint. And that's what you are. And that's what you know yourself to be by faith in the Lord who called us to be saints. Don't be envious, beloved, of the gifts that others may have in the church. Don't be proud of the gifts that you have. And if you have been either envious or proud, please repent of that folly. And remember a couple of things. Remember that every gift that you see in your brother, your sister, your fellow saint is God's gift to you that he gives you in his love for you. 
And remember this too, that as saints, we are members one of another. We're one body in Jesus Christ. We're a communion, a living organism. Nothing more blessed than to be part of that, to belong. And you have that in Christ. Praise God. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we we're so thankful for the gifts that we see in one another. So thankful for the opportunities that thou hast given to our brothers and sisters to serve in the church. And so thankful for the place that thou hast given us to, calling us to be saints. Oh, Father, if there has been envy or pride in our hearts, we repent and we pray, forgive us. And give us, oh, Father, a large spirit, a great heart that is willing and ready to forbear one another, to forgive one another, that is willing and ready to lay down my life for the good of the body, even if that means being lowered down in a hole in the ground like Jeremiah was. But because we love Thee and we love Jesus Christ and we love the body, that we would give ourselves and lay down our lives in love. Oh, Father, we pray that wherever there are problems and dysfunction in the church, which is still living in a cursed and fallen world, we pray continue to sanctify, continue to pour thy spirit out, continue to bring correction and help. And, oh, Father, bless us. Apart from thy blessing, what do we have? Even if we have everything, but have not thy blessing, we have nothing at all. So bless us. Send us away from thy house with thy blessing on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.